Two questions for you. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate, or who are you passionate for? As we consider these questions, our passions, our interests, our focus, I ask that you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be there in just a moment. In our life, we have a, a lot of topics, a lot of things, activities, people, places that uh, come into our life. We choose careers. We go through school. We find friends, people to be around, family members, spouses. What is it that uh, in your life that you have a, a passion for, that you enjoy talking about? Sitting down with your friends, with your, your colleagues, with uh, those at work, and discussing things that, that you get excited about. Topics that you can get into. Maybe your friends have to kind of slow you down. They have to, they have to say, okay, it's been an hour, we need to kind of move on to the next thing. What, what is it that's in your life, the interest that you have? Because that's a very important, it's very important to identify, to think about. Because your life is surrounded by those, those passions, and it serves a very important purpose. And then, who are you passionate for? Who is it that you uh, spend your time with, that you think about, that you care for, that you want the best for them and the well-being in their life? This is the person that you want to go and talk to, and they are going to be your confidant. Who are you passionate for? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When we think about our Christian lives, we are extremely blessed. We have found ourselves, if you are a Christian, in a worldview, in a way of living your life that is greater and better than anything around us. Any philosophy of man, anything through time or century or place, we find ourselves in a way of life that improves us, that improves our relationships, that improves our friends, and gives us ultimate purpose in life. When we think about where we are, we also have to think about who we're around, and are they missing something? You see, when we think about Christian evidences, when we think about evidences for the life that we live, for the actions that we take, for the things that we believe that are true, we need to be able to, as Peter described, be able to give a, an answer, to give a defense. To, to think about the hope we have, wanting that hope to be in our loved ones' lives as well. Christian evidences for every Christian. That's what I want to talk about tonight. For every Christian. When we look at the Great Commission, given at the end of Matthew chapter 28 and at the end of Mark chapter 16, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples every nation. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every 
is that commanded to? Well, it is to all of us. We, we recognize that the burden falls on us today to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But where do you begin? Where do you start when you think about sharing the hope that is in you? With, as Peter said, weakness and fear, humility, passion for the person you're talking to. Where do you start? Well, you start right where you are. Whatever it is in your life right now, whatever surrounds you, whatever career you're on, whatever people you're around, that is where you start to share the good news. Because you're already passionate about it. You're already passionate about what you do and the activities you're involved in, the things that make it up, the constituent parts, where it's going, where it's coming from, the details. You're in it and you love it. You're also passionate about those people who are closest to you, your friends, your family, your co-workers, people you, you want to spend time with. So take those two passions and put them together. That is where you begin to give evidences for Christianity. Now, at a base level, there, there are maybe four categories, and we're going to talk about these four and kind of use these as we, as we develop the lessons tonight. And those are sort of the pillars of what we find in Christianity. Okay, so first, God. Second, God's Word, the Bible. Third, Jesus as the Savior. And then fourth, the church. All right, so God, the Bible, Jesus, and the church. These are four just simple, uh, straightforward pillars that are inside of Christianity. And we need to be able to answer those deep questions. Why do you believe in God? How do you know? Bible is it's actually God's work that it's divine, that it, that it wasn't written by 40 men over 1,600 years in three different... How do you know that this is God's work? How do you know that Jesus even existed, let alone be the Savior of mankind? And how do you know of all the religions in the world, of all the denominations inside of Christianity, how do you know that the church is the truth? The place that has that way in life, as Jesus talked about John 14. Well, we think about the interests we have. Anyone and everyone in the church can and should defend Christianity. If you think about the church, we're sitting tonight, and I hope to discuss some of the diversity that we have, but we're sitting tonight in a, in a diverse audience. Those who might be listening at home have a diverse lifestyle among them. People and places and interests and talents and abilities God had that as a purpose. He didn't ask one group of people to necessarily share the gospel and the rest of the church hang back and wait. Everyone is to share Jesus. Well, why is that? Well, because everyone gives a different perspective that they're able to reach a soul, to impact a heart, to touch a mind, to stimulate some sort of motivation. You can do it where I can't. Hopefully I can do it in places that other people can't so that we fill a gap and we make a hole. And that's what the church is and that's what we find. You know, oftentimes I remember growing up and I remember telling my kids and youth as, as they are growing up that whatever you do in life doesn't matter. As long as you're a Christian first. If you want to be a police officer, be a Christian police officer. You want to be an engineer? Be a Christian engineer. You want to be a doctor? A Christian doctor. A lawyer? A Christian lawyer. Whatever it is that you want to do in your life, 
you be a Christian? Well, why is that? Because in those different avenues of life, we touch the world. If we want to reach the entire world, if we want to make disciples of all nations, we have to do it on a lot of different fronts and in a lot of different ways. You see, Christian evidences are for every Christian. You know, I've sat in seminars, and I've sat in lectureships, and been absolutely astounded by the evidences, by the observations, by the things in the natural world, by the, the logical constructs of arguments for God. I love that, but that's not really the entirety of Christian evidences. Because Christian evidences is everything that makes up Christianity itself. Tonight I want to talk about uh, some specific examples. And the goal is for each of us, whatever place in life, whatever context your life sits in, I want you to, to be able to reflect on and hopefully draw some principles that you think about the passions that are in your life and the things that you know and your talents and your abilities, and you think about how can that be an evidence for God, for the Bible, for Jesus and Jesus' church. We're going to discuss various occupations and interests. We're going to talk about some Bible figures that relate to those occupations and then discuss connections to Christian evidences specifically. I've talked about this on a couple of different occasions, and so each time it, it, it adapts, I adapt it a little bit. And I want to hopefully connect with people here at Southwest. So I'm going to start off with the occupation of engineering. I know that we have numerous engineers uh, in our audience and in our congregation. If we think about engineering, engineering is such a broad and, and, and a wonderful field, right? We have civil engineering and structural engineering, aerospace and mechanical and electrical. Inside of all of that, chemical and nuclear, inside of all that, we have all the implementation, all right? The, how is it mechanically put in, into place? How are the wires run and electricians and constructionists and, and, and plumbers and, and everybody that surrounds the fabricating and the making? Engineering is this amazing field. It's an occupation that uh, I once uh, aimed for, got diverted a little bit, but something that I love as well. Engineering, all about science, all about math, all about putting, putting the puzzle together, solving problems, finding clues. I want to focus on and think about maybe the, the idea of civil engineering, all right? So we have architects and project managers. We have those involved in uh, electrical work and plumbers and construction, all part of our congregation. As they live their life and as these engineers and people that are in the midst of that, as they go through their life, they're going to be around a lot of people that are of the same mind. Very analytical, right? Not necessarily artsy and craftsy, not necessarily that... Was it left brain or right brain? They're going to be around people who, who are very similar to them, so they're going to be thinking like them. And so engineers have a, have a great opportunity to be evidences for Christianity. When we look at the Bible, let's think about a few uh, construction ideas, okay? Civil engineering ideas. Well, in, in the first few chapters of Genesis, we come across Genesis chapter 6, where the ark is going to be built. Right? Talk about a, an architectural or a construction uh, issue or problem or, or, or goal placed in front of Noah. Um, he had many, many years. He had some helpers around him. And we see the end results, right? He built the ark. But what does it tell us in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, speaking about Noah uh, 
in his day and the context that surrounded him, right? Noah wasn't surrounded by hundreds, thousands, millions of people who even believed in God. No, he was surrounded by very worldly, right? The Bible tells us that every thought and intent of the heart of man was, was evil continually. So he was in a very rough area. Are there some construction workers that live among very worldly people? Are there architects that live around very worldly people? Electricians? Engineers? Absolutely. What do we find with Noah, who was in that exact role? Well, in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it says that he was a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't know exactly what Noah talked about, but we can surmise a little bit. He talked about righteousness. What is the most righteous thing that Noah knew about? It was God. It was God's plan. It was God's plan for life, for living, for actions, for relationships. Right? Noah raised his family. They were saved. They had wives. All of them saved, seemingly, because they followed his example. When he taught righteousness, he taught the evidences for God and God's word at that time. And he talked about how people needed to follow as well, but they didn't. You know, another large major construction operation was performed uh, by Solomon. Right? We know from the annals of history that the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, was absolutely grand. Right? Enormous in size and structure, laid with gold, cedars from Lebanon, a beautiful, beautiful structure. Something that once it was destroyed in later history, the Jews, they lamented. Right? They opined the history and the, the splendor of that, that object. What did Solomon say? Well, he wrote the book of Proverbs. And what does Proverbs tell about? Well, it tells about wisdom and learning and God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A fool's despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon built grand things, right? Staples and Jerusalem and walls and aqueducts and pools. And he was involved in civil engineering. I know he was a ruler, but he had to be around all the people who had to into place. And yet we know that he knew about God. We know that he looked at the fear of the Lord as being the beginning of knowledge, the start, the root, the foundation. It's where you begin. Of course, when we turn to Ecclesiastes, we find that, that he faltered in his life. And when we turn to Ecclesiastes, what's that word that so often comes up? Vanity. The vanity of life under the sun. Things that he found in his life and brought in riches and wealth and luxury. And he said, this, this doesn't have any meaning. How did he get into that book? The whole of man, fear God and keep his commandments. The whole of man. That's what that civil engineer and ruler talked about. What about Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah? We know of him as a, as a, a great ruler, a good king. He found himself in his kingdom, in his capital city, being sieged by the Assyrians. King Sennacherib. Here was Hezekiah, right? A good king. Somebody who was trying to uplift and give evidence, evidences for God. Get the people back on the right track. He's being sieged. Well, what does he do during that siege to save the city? Tunneled, right? Hezekiah's tunnel. Named because he, the tunnel was dug 
so that it could reach a spring and bring water, life-sustaining water, into the city during that siege so that they could, they could survive Hezekiah's tunnel. And then we turn and we think about Jesus, right? Jesus was a carpenter's son, so we know that he worked with his hands and thought about construction, at least saw it, however much he did, we may not know. But you know, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus used a construction analogy. You know, Jesus was a wonderful teacher, right? So amazing at how he could, could connect real everyday life to those deep spiritual principles. He talked about a wise man and a foolish man. And what did he talk about those two? One built and built well, chose well, planned well, thought through it. The other, the foolish man, built upon sand. He didn't look at where he was going, what he was going to do, what he was going to put on top, right? Those hydro engineers, water engineers out there, he should have looked at those floodplains before he built his house. Jesus brings up and says, here is this, here is this idea that speaks to your life and planning and preparing. Okay, so thinking about Christian evidence, we've already touched on a few of those. What can an engineer do to talk about God? Well, engineering is all about design. Design in nature, design in life, design in mechanics. Every engineer knows that if you don't put the time and effort in ahead of time to know where the design is going, you're not going to get a good result. Here we sit in a world that is absolutely incredible, a planet that is amazing, life that is sustained, cycles that are ongoing. Who put all this design here? Well, we know the designer. When we look at a house and, and things that are built, we know that we need to give credit to whoever designed it, whoever built it, the architect behind it, the, the, the team that built that structure. Well, that's exactly what Hebrews 3 verse 4, in making it a larger context and a larger spiritual principle, it says, for every house was built by someone. Well, that's obvious, right? That's every day. That's how we live our lives, cause and effect and natural progression. But then he goes on and says, but the builder of all things is God. What about in the Bible? If we look at and think about what can an engineer do to talk about the evidence for the Bible? Well, we talked about one, Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel was, was found much later, right? Lost in the annals of history, but was always in the pages of the Bible. And it was uncovered and found that here was this tunnel. And then, not only was it found in the Bible, not only was it found physically, and today you can walk the length of Hezekiah's tunnel, trod through the water that is in that tunnel still, but you can also go to museums and see the, the clay tablets and the clay cylinders and the prisms that describe from the Assyrian point of view exactly what we find in 2 Kings 18 and 19. It proves the Bible's existence. Well, we talked about Jesus, we talked about how Jesus used these natural things around him to connect to God and obedience and what is good and right. Well, we can do the same thing, right? We can look at that same example. And so an engineer can look at and use his, his knowledge and his, his understanding to talk about spiritual principles that a person needs in their life. But you need to think about, before you start a project, where are you going? But really in life, you need to think about the direction that you are heading. All right, let's change gears and, and let's think about because I know in our, in our congregation we have numerous connected to the medical field. So let's think about medicine. 
doctors, nurses, physical therapists, dentists, chiropractors. In that occupation, you are dealing with people. I would say, God bless those people, those doctors who have to deal day in and day out with some of us who are pretty cranky when we uh, are running temperatures, have broken arms, have issues that we can't understand or find out, and we have to be at their mercy to be poked and prodded. But that's great. Those people serve in an amazing capacity. They sit at a, at a bridge in life that they can have a huge impact. You know, when we think about Bible figures, uh, I thought about uh, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua, the names of the Hebrew midwives. Right? There they were in the, the, the nation of Egypt, uh, the country of Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. And uh, they were given the uh, directive to kill all the Hebrew baby boys that were born. Well, Shifra and Pua knew that that was not what they needed to do. That was not right. That was not according to God. Uh, and so they disobeyed that directive. But they lived their life in day in and day out. The amazing capacity of childbirth to bring children into the world. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I also talk about Moses because uh, here Moses and the priests. Uh, Moses was the law giver, okay? Uh, he brought the law to the people. Um, but he also talked about how the priests, especially in Leviticus chapter 13, the priests serve a medical capacity, right? We are now living in the times of uh, quarantine. We uh, kind of understand a little bit more now about quarantine, uh, infectious disease, and spreading of germs and, and we need to distance ourselves we need to keep ourselves away we need to wash our hands and cough into our elbow right? all of these things well the priests uh, were given this capacity okay, back in ancient times through the law of Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy there are discussions of quarantining people for the health of the community the health of the congregation where you can go and when you can go. It talks about uh, time periods that you needed to wait once you figured out that you were not infectious anymore. Uh, the priests, right, the priests served at that time as the people who would evaluate. They would do examinations and they would look at the sores. Were they leprous? Were they not? Uh, and they had criteria ascribed to them. Right. Now, the Bible may not be a medical book, you know what? In third world countries today, it would be a great foundation for structuring their life, for structuring their communities. Here, the priests had to evaluate to make sure that someone was clean. And you know, Jesus knew that in Luke chapter 17, verse 14, right? Ten lepers are there in front of Jesus. And he healed all of them. And what was his directive to them? Go and show yourselves to the priests. They were to go to the medical examiners of that day, have their leprosy, the sores, their skin evaluated. Should they be quarantined? What do they need to do? Do they still have to live outside the city or come in? Medical figures are found in the scripture, and one interesting one is, is uh, Luke. If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The writer of the Gospel of Luke, 
in Luke himself. We find out in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul references Luke and he says that he is the beloved physician. He is a medical doctor. He is somebody acquainted with the ailments of man. In Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, here's what it says, if you'll read along with me. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. All right? First off, in this short passage, Luke is a very interesting, I don't know what does it, we might talk to Steve sometime later. Luke, being a Gentile, his writing had a lot of unique words and phrases that he used in the writing. Now, everything was inspired, but you see Luke coming through, his passions, his knowledge, his abilities. In this very first section, if you look at uh, the phrase, have taken in hand. It's a phrase not used by any other Bible writer, used by Luke just a few times. It's thought in ancient times that this phrase was referring to the evaluation of a hand, an arm, by a physician, having taken it in hand, having looked at it. Maybe the laying on of hands, right? The physical caring for, having, have taken in hand, all right? So he has taken it, he has evaluated it, he has looked at it. The phrase in here where it says a, a, a a declaration or a narrative in verse 1. This is another word used only by, by Luke. Uh, it has connections and usage by Hippocrates uh, in the ancient Greek world. Uh, Hippocrates, right? The Hippocratic Oath, what physicians would take today to say that they would be there for their, their patient and do everything for their patient's best interest. And then one more that was interesting. Uh, in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. In the Greek, this is the word that gives us the, the root for the word autopsy. Not used by any other Bible writer, autopsy. Physicians, right, performing autopsies would do examinations, would look deeply into what's the circumstances, how did this person pass, what was involved in their life, going or coming or doing or better or worse. Luke, okay, he's not writing a treatise right here to defend a scientific evidence for Jesus. Rather, he is using his physician background to write a historical narrative, an historical declaration of Jesus' life. He was using his own talents to give an evidence for Jesus is the deity. All right, now let's think about those in the medical profession. What could you do to give evidence for Christianity in your life? Well, you know, one thing that's very obvious is the design of life. If you have anything to do with the human body, yes, there are things that go awry in us, right? Strange things, occurrences, or issues that, that, that crop up. How many years do we live times does our heartbeat and our lungs expand and collapse and expand and collapse? And how many, what volume of blood flows through our body each year and is remade, blood cells and platelets and 
many cells, right? Trillions of cells that make up our body. Astounding. And then we turn to Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. Was the psalmist a physician? Was he a medical doctor? No. Was he a midwife who delivered babies? No. Did he know the everyday processes of life? Yes. Was he astounded by it? Did he say, that points to God? Well, we can do the same. We think about the Bible. We talked about uh, Leviticus chapter 13 and quarantining. You know, the Bible, uh, those, those books, uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, written by Moses about 1500 B.C., coming out of Egypt, right? Egypt, known for its uh, marvels, the pyramids and the sphinx, known for its mummification and their understanding of the body. But if you look at some of the practices that the Egyptians had for health in their culture, and you compare that to the practices that the Hebrews in their life and in their culture. Stark contrasts. The Bible, those simple, though those passages are meant to be able to be put into practice by the Hebrews, right? Living thousands of years ago in, in rough conditions without modern conveniences that we have, but yet everything in there has a positive purpose when it relates to health. The Egyptian codexes that talked about their health practices, bizarre, right? Obvious, going the wrong way in health practices. If you are in the medical field, you can also talk about Jesus Christ. Think about the crucifixion. I know that we have heard sermons, very moving discussions, looking at and talking about what Jesus went through physically, medically, the pain and the anguish that he had to suffer. That is something that if a medical person could talk to somebody about and discuss why would somebody willingly go through that, give up their rights not to defend themselves, to go through that type of end. Well, it's because the church is the blood of Christ. Acts 20, verse 28, it is purchased by the blood of Jesus. We find in Leviticus, it talks about the life of the flesh is in the blood. Well, Jesus, Jesus' body is the church. His, his blood is, is, is part of us. He gave his blood for us. One last occupation that I want to talk about, and I have to, I have to skip a few, but one last one I want to talk about is the occupation of teaching. Because this is a very straightforward. We all do it, whether you're a teacher or not. If you have children, you're a teacher. If you are a, a person at work who has to train anybody, you have to teach. If you have to convey knowledge at any level, any degree, you are a teacher. But teachers also serve this amazing uh, role because they influence what is learned, what is known, practices that are put into place, early childhood development, physical education, uh, science classrooms, right, secondary education, college careers, certification processes, all of these things we're trying to get across knowledge. And when we think about Bible figures that must have been great teachers, well, Solomon. 
a very wise man. We see the Proverbs, and we find out later that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs, right? We don't even have necessarily all of his teachings that went out from his wisdom. Uh, we see that people traveled from all over just to come and hear what Solomon had to say. But then we turn to the New Testament, and we find a, a somewhat obscure couple, Priscilla and Aquila. This couple that had to flee Rome, this couple that ended up uh, in a place where they got to be with Paul and learn from Paul in the early days of the church. And then what do we find in Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla and Aquila do? Well, they're listening and they're hearing a teacher and they realize that Apollos doesn't have full understanding. He knows about John's baptism, but he doesn't know about Jesus'. He's teaching the gospel. He's teaching people. So Priscilla will pull him aside. And Acts chapter 18, verse 26 simply says, they explained the way of God more accurately. They were teachers. What was their passion? Their passion was God. Their passion was, was understanding. But they saw that something was amiss. And so they took their talents and abilities, pulled Apollos aside. And we know from other passages that Apollos was a great man of God. Who went on and did other great works, teaching and preaching, and Priscilla and Philip did that. Then we find Paul and Timothy, right? Paul we know of as being this foundational teacher, right? Uh, he was a Jew among Jews. He sat at the, the, the feet of Gamaliel. He was highly educated. He could orate and teach in amazing ways. In 2 Timothy, and if you'll turn to 2 Timothy, we'll talk about a few verses as we begin to come to a conclusion here. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul talks about and states that he, he was appointed several different capacities or occupations. Verse 11 of, of chapter 1, he says, I was appointed as a preacher, as an apostle, and as a teacher. Paul realized that he had an occupation. His occupation at one point had been a Pharisee. Strictness of the law. At one point, he had also been a tent maker, we find out, right? But his occupation, he says here, included being a teacher. Turn one chapter over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is teaching Timothy, but what does he tell Timothy in verse 2? He says that, and the things you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul appointed a teacher teaches Timothy and says, you are now appointed a teacher. You need to share the gospel. You need to commit these things to faithful men. What can teachers do to be evidence for Christianity? Well, you know, the human mind is absolutely amazing, and teachers know that. Teachers know that not every learner is visual. You can't just show them and they'll know it. Not every learner is auditory. You can't just say it and they know it. Sometimes it has to be kinetic. So sometimes you have to do all of those, right? And teachers know that. But they know that because of the complexity of the human mind. Things that we see and hear and perceive, that we bring into our life and we plan and we prepare. How incredible our brains are. How we take in information. Who created such an amazing you? Well, God did. And teachers have a great place to share that kind of information. You know, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us that since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes have been clearly seen. That verse tells us that everything around us 
can point to God if we are open to it. But, but you know, it also tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you turn over one more chapter, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That that Scripture is profitable for doctrine. What is doctrine? Well, it's teaching. It's profitable for teaching. Why? Because we can know about God and the amazing world that surrounds us, the things that go on. To obey God's plan, how to learn about Jesus Christ, how to submit our lives to Him. And that's where we find in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, reprove, exhort with all long suffering and instruction in righteousness. Instruction, teachers, all right? Teachers can teach about Jesus and teach about the church far better. Many of us can. So, in concluding thoughts, we come back and we think about 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let our answer, or let our Speech be seasoned with salt. Let us know how we ought to answer. You know, we talked about the Great Commission. The Great Commission. So the question tonight is, have you, those here tonight, have you obeyed the Great Commission? Have you heard the good news of Jesus? Have you believed it? You've taken that information in and it's soaked into your mind and into your heart where you believe it deeply. Have you repented of your sins? Have you seen Jesus, confessed Jesus as the Savior, and have you been baptized? That is, that is the Great Commission's call, right? The gospel of Jesus, the submission of baptism so that our sins might be forgiven. But then the other question for those who are Christians tonight, whatever occupation you find yourself in, have you obeyed the command of the Great Commission? With all your heart, have you obeyed it? With all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, have you obeyed the Great Commission? Well, how do you do that without giving evidences for Christianity? And so where do we start? Well, we start right where we are, whatever it is that we're passionate about, whatever it is that you know, use that passion and that knowledge to tell people about the God that exists, the Bible that's His Word. The Son, Jesus, who came down and died for their, their sins. And then the church, where we can be and we can exist. Tonight, if that invitation or if that need is uh, in your life, to obey the Great Commission fully, or to obey the Great Commission by following and becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, you'll have a